Hey, I like that. It's noisy, but it resolves quickly. Someone with talent should make a mashup. The song titles will be in the show notes. Welcome to Rotcast. This uh, episode's theme is Rebel Rebel. You probably wouldn't guess this, but I was a rebel once. In fact, I was a model rebel. That sounds like a contradiction in terms, but follow me here. I was living in Richmond, Kentucky. My school was Model High School. The students at Model High call themselves the Patriots. That's okay, but in my day, we were less politically correct. When I went to Model, the older students enjoyed rekindling the spirit of the losing South, possibly because there was no danger of a bullet or bayonet reaching them from across time and ruining their entire day. Kentucky was a border state during the Civil War, And when I went to Model High School, we were definitely rebels. You see? There? Model Rebel. The real rebels at Model High were the juniors and the seniors. They were wild, running through the hallways like crazy people. We were younger, impressionable, and hardly rebellious. We merely watched in awe. This school put all the levels of students into one complex and the whole school was located on the edge of the Eastern Kentucky University campus. My family moved to Kentucky from Michigan. 
I was settling into the school when I noticed a beautiful older woman. She was in 8th grade and I was in 7th grade. She was very petite, smaller than her classmates. This might have helped me approach Mary Sue. Thankfully, I don't remember asking her out, but I can remember one scary assignation I made with the beautiful Mary Sue. I'll remember it for you, backwards. I had just sprinted through a graveyard. There was a graveyard between the university auditorium and my direct path home. On some other night, the journey home might not have been so eerie, but I was on foot and alone. All the college kids were heading in the opposite direction, back towards their campus dorms. My date must have been picked up by her family. I was too young to drive. I asked her to a Halloween movie put on by the university. The film had freaked me out. First, I was nervous about being on a date. But on top of that, I didn't feel really smooth as I tried to hide that I was frightened by the movie. The film was a nightmare called The House That Screamed, a dubbed Spanish horror also known as La Residencia. I've never enjoyed horror films. The House That Screamed was a most unnerving experience. The audience sitting all around Mary and me were college girls. They were cracking each other up, screaming at every opportunity. They must have thought it was hilarious. Really, there isn't any screaming in La Residencia. Only a bit of browbeating. But that auditorium screamed. It was too much audience participation for me. Who was it? William Castle? He was the impresario who installed buzzers under the seats to guarantee an adrenaline rush. That's what it was like with all these girls screaming behind me. I'm going to spoil the end of La Residencia. I feel justified in doing this because, well, it isn't scary. It's creepy, but there are many worse things on network TV these days. It turns out the headmistress of a boarding school has an insane son who builds his perfect woman out of body parts taken from various boarding school girls who have mysteriously gone missing. He has butchered them and assembled them into a horrific mess. Lily Palmer plays the mother. She's a bit too close to her boy. She promises him one day he will meet the right woman. A woman like herself. Then she kisses her son on the mouth. I found the film disturbing for its themes and dramatic presentation. My mission with Mary Sue was a romantic one, but the film kept my mind distracted with its depiction of a twisted matriarchy in isolation. It was a lot to take in. This might have been another person's perfect Halloween night, including the run through the graveyard, but not mine. I should say that as a model rebel, it all worked out. Mary Sue enjoyed hanging out with college kids, even if she was sitting next to a chicken. Now it took time for me to know what you tried so not to show something in my soul just cried I see the one in your blue eyes 
lot of things about me you don't know anything about, Daddy. Things you wouldn't understand. Things you couldn't understand. Things you shouldn't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. You don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I'm a loner, Daddy. A rebel. We just Netflixed the first three shows of the motorcycle epic Sons of Anarchy. They are following Hamlet. Ron Perlman says it's going to follow Hamlet exactly. It's going to have to spread the story of Hamlet out pretty thinly. And uh, you could see that there's going to be shows in there that don't have anything to do with Shakespeare. Hamlet's mother marries the killer of Hamlet's father. You know how Hamlet ends? Everybody dies. <laughs> okay. Knowing that, as one more thing about this series, are you interested in watching it? It won't be much of a series if they all die. Well, that'd be the last show. Um, I doubt it's going to follow it that closely. I didn't know that Ron Perlman had said that. That's why I wanted to see it. I'm a big <clears throat> fan of Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman is not too keen on riding motorcycles you didn't see that in the show at all well they could put training wheels on his and then <laughs> um airbrush him out <laughs> sure stunt riders he said he said the thing he was afraid of is he's 58 and it's a thousand pound harley motorcycle and so far though all he's had is small injuries they don't poo poo the uh three-wheeler too much i mean it's a nice looking bike he could probably start riding one of those you could still be the head of the, the clan. But, you know, they kept saying Sam Crow, Sam Crow. Okay, it's uh, Sons of Anarchy Motorcycle Club Redwood Original Chapter. Well, chapter doesn't quite work for Crow. It'd be Croc. Sam Croc. Good point. I couldn't help comparing it to Deadwood, and it doesn't come off that well because the thing I loved about Deadwood was it wasn't any particular Shakespeare play or storyline that they were using. They were using soliloquies where one character just talks to himself or, in Deadwood's case, maybe a, a dead Indian's head in a box. Oh, the language was incredibly hard to figure out at times, and just like Shakespeare, is because it, it's written in a different age. It was rich with meanings, and you could go back and reinterpret it and see the shows over and over again and get new things out of them. That is totally absent from the Sons of Anarchy. They're just borrowing Hamlet's storyline. This is not the first time that Shakespeare has been borrowed and combined with a gang of toughs. I'm thinking of Switchblade Sisters, a take on Othello, which Quentin Tarantino released on his Rolling Thunder series. And then there, of course, is West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet, dressed up as a New York gang musical. 
what was your favorite actor that did did you like hamlet himself the blonde guy well while he is cute he definitely needs a shower um i i love ron perlman i just really like him acting but overall they are not nice people that you would want to meet (laughs) whereas deadwood i would feel okay if i was around the sheriff and them i'd feel somewhat safe but the sons of anarchy the sheriff and the county guy it was almost like they were barney fifes the sons of anarchy their code is weird they, so far in the first three shows, you get the idea that the uh, Hamlet character is conflicted, and it's because the outlaw biker gang seems all about, like, let's make money. Well, not just money. Let's make money in bad ways. Let's run guns, uh, rip off a trucker. Oh, yeah. Also, there's a very little difference between the skinheads who actually don't project that much racism besides their tattoos and the real racism spoken by the characters of the Sons of Anarchy they're very racist it's a big turn off but it's probably more realistic the way it is we are just have our sensibilities well right if they ever have a storyline where the Mayans the arrival gang uh, we get to hear how they talk about everyone then it'll even out if we were going to continue watching sons of anarchy then that might balance out and become a better story that way i'd hate to be alone with any of them and the mother katie seagal she's playing a really good part (laughs) yeah so i'm my favorite character is this young doctor who uh left the uh club They showed that she was once a member or related in some way to the club with her tramp stamp tattoo. (laughs) And that she came back to this town, and people are not sure why, but she's definitely got uh, her hackles up whenever she sees uh, Katie Seagal. Katie Seagal has a presence where it doesn't look like you'd want to cross her. Not one bit. She is one hard cookie. She's going against her son, even where she's trying to hide stuff from him of what other people in the past have thought. Like even her, his father, he kept a journal and the mother does not want him to read the journal. It looks like it's well done production and maybe we should try one more disc. Yeah, let, let's get uh, one more disc. This is number 11 saying goodbye and happy TV watching. That's a good sign off. Can you make it have something to do with Rebel Rebels? How about you, Rotwang, seeing Rebel yell? With the Rebel yell, she cried more, more, more. With the Rebel yell, I don't know the lyrics. Please stop. Rebel Rebel, you torn your dress. I do like the song. It's just, it's not one of my favorites. My favorite's fame. That's what started me liking Bowie. It was the last song he did in his glam rock style. And he took the riff. It's possible he took the riff from Jane County's Queen Age Baby. I don't know. I can't find the song to compare it. Maybe Bowie bought up every copy. Thief. Well, 
David Bowie is very eclectic, but it's just a riff. I don't think you can even trademark a riff. Uh, talk to George Harrison about that. Yeah, but he, he took the whole tune. Both of them stink anyway. I like both of those songs. I'm glad he took the chiffons, He's So Fine, and changed it to My Sweet Lord. I can listen to them both now. Double the fun. Or double the pain. Well, I remember uh, Diamond Dogs being the first time I really knew about Bowie, and it was because the album cover is so... Weird? Weird. Yeah, weird. Where they had to redo it because they made it uh, (laughs) (laughs) X-rated. I might have read the lyrics to Rebel Rebel once off the Diamond Dogs album cover, but I forgot them pretty fast. I got one really weird thing. I might even be Italian, but it's like a dancing gnome. It was total crap. But I bought it because it was Bowie. That was the laughing gnome. It sounds like Bowie with Alvin and the Chipmunks. I think Rebel Rebel is a pretty solid Bowie hit. Sometimes I like a song to be stripped down. It just moves along. I know you don't like a song that seems to repeat endlessly. It's a really good one to be driving in your car. Turn it up really loud. Just sing along, whether you know the words or not. Got a lot of Bowie's music, and the ones that I like best almost sound like they're from the 50s. I like Rebel Yell better than I like uh, Rebel Rebel by Billy Idol. It's just a happier song. Whenever it comes on, I always turn it up louder. It's not about a tacky girl. Are you sure it's not about a tacky girl? I can't remember what that song's about. Uh, right now, all I have is Rebel Rebel in my head. Let's compare the lyrics of Rebel Yell with Rebel Rebel. You know, Rebel Yell sounds like it might be an excellent R&B song. With all the midnight hours in there. The Rebel Yell song tells of a woman who is free to love whomever she wants, but chooses to treat the song's narrator very special. The singer reciprocates. He pledges his long friendship just so long as it doesn't mess up his hair. Rebel Rebel is a different story. It's more complicated. The subject is a, a young person who likes to go out dancing to hard and fast rock music. This person is fastidious in their appearance. The song's narrator assures the young club hopper that they look good, but he also points out how the rebel has slipped by night's end with torn clothes and smeared makeup. The singer also references a hypnotic tranquilizer drug. Possibly the young rebel deals these drugs, or, more likely, their personality is like a drug. There are two references to female promiscuity, although the sex of the young rebel is not made clear. But hey babe, your hair's alright.
some Confederate veterans rebel yell. Credit must be given to radio station WBT, Charlotte, North Carolina, for any use or reproduction of this recording. And now, the juicy truth. Today we'll be drinking Middle Sister. It's a California red table wine. They call it Rebel Red, and that's how this wine fits into our theme. Rebel Red is a blend of 38% Zinfandel, 34% Merlot, 31% Cabernet, 5% Syrah, and 2% other red grapes. The Middle Sister website says that 42% of the grapes are harvested out of Lodi. We've had some nice zins from Lodi. I'm here with B12 and our mother. Well, let me read the back label. To, it's got a little joke on it. It says, Did you know that birth order is commonly believed to have a profound and lasting effect on psychological development? That would be unless, of course, you created the birth order in a very unique pattern. <laughs> Like, <laughs> like ours. <laughs> like our mom did. <laughs> no, my mom didn't and have my that. mom before me. And that the middle sister has a greater chance of having a special wine named just for her. <laughs> a sassy blend of our three favorite red varieties, perfect for sipping before, during, and after our favorite family meals. Some people are just born lucky. Now give me back my blouse. Oh, I love the label. It's very modern. It's the middle sister. She looks like the rebel. And uh, I am the middle sister. Um, it says it's a stick figure of three, um, three women in dresses. The middle one is wearing red platform shoes, red hair, a uh, black dress, as opposed to the other girls in white dress, holding a glass of rebel red. <laughs> I'd probably buy it if I saw this label out in the store, regardless of its flavor. So for a long time you were the, the baby sister, but then you became the middle sister. How does that make you feel? How does something like that happen, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't mind being the middle sister. I guess I, I don't know the little sister that well, but I consider myself more flamboyant than the older sister. So That reminds me that Mom has come from a family of three sisters. She's the oldest of the three, so it was uh, Cora, the rebel. Cora's not a rebel. <laughs> Who's the rebel? Lori? You have to be the rebel, Mom, because you changed our birth order, so you basically <laughs> and, were the and rebel. And you are also forgetting my six other brothers and sisters. 
Wait, I, I knew you had a weird family, but you, <laughs> yes. you, 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 did you have an older sister? Four. Four older sisters? And two brothers. So you could be a middle sister. There are no rebels in my family. Well, the only time I could say that, when I was a rebel, I had to write a reminiscence about that. And the only time I was when I went to model high school and we were the rebels. <laughs> I don't ever remember you being a rebel. You're far from a rebel. But no, the sassy part of the label, I'll, I'll totally give up to myself. Yeah, I think you are sassy. You're the sassy sister for sure. But I think it would be more normal for the oldest kid to be the rebel because don't they get into trouble first and then the other uh, siblings say, oh, I'm not doing that? Sometimes it's the youngest because they are not held to the same rules as the other part of the family and and the mother's so tired by the time she gets They can get away with more. The children have beaten the mother into total submission and she has nothing. I believe it's time to start the wine review proper. Let's judge the color. A dark cherry. It is red red more than purple, isn't it? It's a dark deep red. Deep red. I would say it was Pantone 188. That's how overprocessed this wine is. They've even manipulated the color to match a swatch. So that's good. Let's, let's give it a 10. Okay. It's 10. Now let's score the clarity. It's, it's got a really good clarity. I think that might be another 10. It's fairly clear. I agree. Yeah, there's no sediments in it, and it's not cloudy. Now we should give a score for the body. It's, I thought it was light. Light. It was surprisingly light. I kind of agreed with what you were saying. You thought when you were going to pour it, it was going to be a deep wine. You heard Merlot was in it. That's kind of heavy. And it's surprisingly light. This has a medium body, and I'm enjoying it. Mm, well, I, I rather liked it. Um, I give it for a red, an eight. I'm going to go with, a, with an eight. I won't be the rebel. I'll say eight as well. Next category is aroma notes. It doesn't have as strong a smell as some of the others. Oh gosh, uh, we're low on this one then. I'm thinking probably a four. Okay, four. I would go a little higher, but I'll stick with the pack and say four. Next is taste notes. At first, it almost tastes flat. But as it finishes on your tongue, you can detect more acid. That saves the flavor pretty dramatically. I would attribute that to the Merlot in the mix. But I can't name an individual taste note. It tastes like wine. One thing I like is that it doesn't taste too much of alcohol. E12, what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm glad you didn't tell me what was in it before we started, because I didn't want that to influence me. I don't think there's a lot of Merlot in it, because it's not really earthy. On a scale of 1 to 10, how do you like the flavor? 7 or an 8. I was going to say 8. I like it quite a bit. I'm going to say 8, too. Next is the complexity. It's just a table wine. You wouldn't expect much complexity. I don't taste any uh, second flavor. 
even as an aftertaste. So I, I'm going to say probably a three. Three. Three sounds good. All right. The next is the acid balance. Mild is a good descriptor. I, I said it starts flat, and uh, then it surprises you on the on the aftertaste a bit with uh, a little more acid. That is different than a lot of the wines I've tasted, and uh, so I'm appreciating that. I think the acid balance is good. It, it does. It's not too tart. It's not making uh, me salivate. I don't taste the tannins. Uh, okay, eight. I might even give it a nine. I will give it a nine too because of uh, the way the acid is presented. The alcohol balance is next. It is thirteen point five percent. B12 is feeling it. I can feel the alcohol. Not me. Me either. I'm thinking that it might uh, get minus points for uh, having too little alcohol. Seven. I'm, I'm going up there around an eight or nine. Okay. Uh, Mom says seven and B12 says nine, eight or nine. I will go eight. I'm, I'm sort of feeling it. All right. Last is the price score. You want to try to find a bottle that is about $10, and this one is around 11 That's probably an easy 10 for this. I think that it's a 10 I think that this is a great wine. I don't think it's going to steal from any food you're eating. I think it's just going to enhance it. It's got a nice alcohol content. Okay, and uh, I should say that uh, everywhere I went to try to find this wine, I found that other people had been looking for it as well. It has a good word-of-mouth reputation. Or at least people are curious about it. I'm calculating the final tally. Please hold. The final score is 77. While that's not the greatest score, I think the aroma notes and the complexity really brought it down. Oh, Mom, while I was writing my one memory of being a rebel, I decided to tell the story of the date I had in junior high where we went to a very scary movie. And oh, your girlfriend really liked it, and she was sitting there watching every bit, and you kept making excuses to go out into the lobby and get things and go to the restroom so you didn't have to see it. And then you had to come home through the cemetery, and you ran all the way. <laughs> yes, I wanted you to know. I just got over the trauma, like yesterday. There's a thing called Netflix, and I could find that movie now. And watch it. And it'd probably be tame. Middlesisterwines.com is an attractive website. Their whole line of wines sport labels where the sister in the middle changes depending on which wine is in the bottle. For example, they have Wicked White, Forever Cool, Drama Queen, Mischief Maker, Smarty Pants, Surfer Chick, Goody Two Shoes. They all represent characters like the wines have their own character. That's the juicy truth for this episode. Thanks to B12, number 11, and Mom.
It's time to reveal last episode's chapter and verse movie. And to do this, I have a clip off of the Criterion DVD, which should take care of the answer pretty neatly. When director Lindsay Anderson's famous film If ignited the Cannes Film Festival in 1969, the British ambassador called the X-rated film, which was the official British entry, an insult to the nation. But the judges awarded it the festival's highest honour, the Palme d'Or. It immediately became a cult film. At once anarchic, intimate and a savage satire on the class system, it chimed with the revolutionary mood of the time. Set in an English public school, this fable had sadism, nudity, homosexuality and bloody mayhem. If you haven't seen If, I highly recommend it. It is strange and it is fairly timeless, even though it has an interesting 60s vibe. There's not a lot in the film to date it. The random scenes that switch from black and white to color through me for a long time and I haven't found any information that explains why the film jumps back and forth but the uh, explanation I like there's a trio of boys at this English public school when they want to get together alone they meet in this room and the walls are covered with pages torn from magazines and the pages torn from magazines are sometimes black and white and sometimes color. And I think that is as good an explanation as any other one I, I heard about why the film jumps back and forth from black and white to color. It was a matter of whether it was an interior shot or an exterior shot, because interior shots, I guess, are, are harder to light for color. I think I read that it was just expedient for them to, to switch types of film. But... It, that doesn't hold true throughout the entire film. You'll see some interiors in color and some exteriors in black and white. So I like my explanation better. I also like the ad campaign a lot for If. They liken it to a grenade of a movie. There was controversy over the movie. It was rated X. I think the rating system may have kept it off the mainstream radar in the U.S. too. I know I've seen uh, stills of it in books about movies, but I'd never seen it until recently. My favorite scene in If? Well, the introduction to um, Malcolm McDowell's character is very good. He arrives at his house wrapped in a scarf, and he's wearing a big floppy hat. So he sort of resembles the shadow from the radio series. It's a very nice way to introduce the character and uh, to hide his mustache. Malcolm says this about that. So immediately, you know, this character is a rebel, you know. So here is our next chapter in verse. Here are some hints. This film was a favorite of my mother's when she was a teenager. The star of this film only made a small number of movies. I believe this is the first widescreen color film this director made. He started out working for Howard Hughes, making black and white cops and robber movies. Our movie today is broken into 35 chapters. The chapters are very short, which is a nice change from the 7 to 8 minute chapters we've done so far. This chapter is 2 minutes and 33 seconds long. It's called When the End Will Come. Appropriately enough, it's near the end of the film. 
Chapter 31 begins with a young man in a red windbreaker and blue jeans. He turns around and motions a young girl to stay back or behind him. He's in center frame. The girl flattens herself against the wall so she faces the camera. And this is to the far right of the frame. To the far left of the frame is a sign which gives the hours of operation for this particular building. There are no lights on in the building. We hear a voice from a bullhorn. The boy approaches an elaborately carved door. It's a door made in the Art Deco style. A band of stars are carved down the dark stained door. The raised carved stars, or suns, are painted in gold. Our hero's name is Jim. He throws open the door with a slam. The girl's name is Judy and she peeks from behind the wall, nervously. Jim is standing in a vestibule. He's through one set of doors and pokes his head into another inner set of doors. His echoing voice calls out to a friend, Are you in there? Jim says he's coming in and that the friendship that he has with the boy inside is important to him. Jim cautions his friend that he's opening the door. We hear very quiet muted trumpets from the score, like he's charging in on tiptoes. This resolves into the movie's theme music. Light halos Jim's head as he opens the door. He says, you can shoot me if you want to. He props open the door. The camera switches back to the original angle to show Judy watching in the same position we first saw her. Jim continues to speak conversationally to his friend. He gives a small laugh and tells his friend he is blind as a bat and that his friend should light a match. Judy changes her position and ducks behind a desk, which is behind the hours of operation sign. Jim moves deeper into the dark room until we can't see him anymore from Judy's position. Inside again, Jim jokes he's going to break his neck in the dark. Then he asks his friend, where are you? The answer comes, I have a gun. Jim says, I know. Jim reaches over a long control panel. He tries various knobs and switches. He asks his friend to light a match again, and his friend says no. Jim asks his friend, how are you? And the answer comes, fine. Jim says, that's fine, as he trips a switch that throws some light into the room. But it's a strange light. It has multiple origins, and it's moving. It's like a disco ball. We see a low-paneled corral surrounded by theater seats. Rising out of the central corral is the base of a moving ball structure. From the score, we hear high quivering strings in a kind of breathing rhythm. It's creepy. Then we hear... You think the end of the world will come at night time? Uh-uh. At dawn. Come on now. <laughs> The camera shows a close-up of Jim. He has a smudge of dirt on his forehead and dirt on his chin. He's slightly sweaty. His eyes shift as he listens to and answers the question about the end. He makes a pouty face and frowns. He rests his chin on his arm. Jim says, come on now. And where are you and why are you hiding? He continues talking and walking closer to the paneled corral. Jim tells his friend to just stand up. The camera is now behind Jim. He continues. Come on, stand up. You've seen this show before. Huh? Come on. Do you see that star up there? 
Stand up. Look at it. Well, I can't talk to you if I can't see you. A black and white field of stars appears on screen, as if we are looking through the eyes of the boy who is hiding. Then we see Judy back in the lobby. She's sitting on the floor. Her arms are wrapped around her knees. She still looks worried. She turns her head as if to wonder what's happening inside. That ends chapter 31. The Rodcast musical bed you're hearing is called Haunted. It's used with the permission of the composer Kim Schutterley. If you have a good idea for a Rodcast theme or a wine suggestion for our review, email your idea to mail at rotcast.com or call the Rot Line. The Rot Line phone number will be posted at the website or Skype us at CallRotCast. Visit www.rotcast.com to learn more about the wines and link to more content. Listen next time when you will hear... Oh, Father, I do wish you would give up this inhuman hunt. Johnny Walker.